0: everybody welcome back to the beyond the peloton podcast i'm spencer martin from the beyond the peloton newsletter i'm here with andrew vance from the choose the hard way podcast we're going to talk about the cyclocross world championships the matthew Vanderpool wout van Aert showdown and why andrew thinks that this is maybe the last time we've, we've seen it andrew do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get into this though
1: yeah for sure choose the hard way is a podcast about how hard things build stronger humans and sometimes I have guests from the world of cycling, and in fact, Spencer is going to be joining me to interview Benji Nason from Lantern Rouge. Uh, so that podcast is going to be dropping in a couple of weeks. But come check us out. Choose the Hard Way. It's everywhere that you listen, and at Choose the Hard It's a great great
0: podcast. Highly recommend listening to it. I'm excited to both listen to and be part of the Benji episode. I uh, he's a fascinating man. I want to know more about him, and he's actually been on my podcast beyond the peloton but andrew what is, what was your big takeaway cyclocross world championships wow van art looked unbeatable for like the last six weeks shows up the world championships was looked awesome by the way great atmosphere gets a, a little bit smoked by matthew Vanderpool, who looked uh not good all year came came out of that late season training block looking like a different person um there wasn't really any separation between them but Vanderpool wins in kind of a definitive sprint win. I thought I thought Van Aert looked a little lost actually in that last lap. What, what, what was your takeaway?
1: My initial reaction was, I thought Wout had taken a dive. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> it, it almost looked a little match fixy. It did look like Rigoberto Urán at the 2012 Olympics. I, I don't know where I am. What's going on? Why is Vinokrov riding away from me?
1: Yeah, I mean, he entered the straightaway, as you pointed out in the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, He should have started sprinting immediately. It was a short sprint. He was in front waiting, did not play to his advantage yet. He did. It was, I was totally confused by what happened and Vanderpool had burned so many matches so early in the race, his attacks were ferocious, aggressive, and frequent from the first lap really. And I didn't think he was going to have it at the end of the race. And yet he did. Yeah, it's like this Vanderpool
0: strategy. We've seen him do it this year, but he's just not been fit enough to make it work. He goes out so hard; it's just kind of uh, like a blitzkrieg strategy, and tries to pummel Van Art. Van Art, look, he looked shook. I mean, he was Vanderpool was using a lot of matches to do that, but Van Art looked like he was really getting in his head how hard he was having to work to stay on his wheel. And Sven the the great Nies said halfway through the race, like this is a race to the final corner. Whoever makes it to that final corner wins the race. So I think we were all expecting Vanderpool to use what looked like a little bit of superior fitness to attack midway through that final lap, get to the final corner in front and then just open up the sprint. Um, he did the opposite. He just sat back, Van Aert went into that final corner and then was lost. I mean, he was just looking around for Vanderpool to go. Vanderpool goes and, but it's kind of a uphill windy road and Slightly uphill, and once he opened up the sprint, there's nothing you can do to close it down. So, I, I was really confused what happened. I mean, I feel I, I don't want to tell Wout Van Aert how to race his bike. The guy's obviously one of the best who's ever done it, but maybe just I, maybe it just got in his head how hard he was having to work to stay on Vanderpool's wheel.
1: Yeah, possibly. And Spencer, as you know, my kids who are four and six have watched a lot of cyclocross racing the past few years, and they picked Wout. To win worlds and seeing those disappointed faces over pancakes on Sunday was it was a tough moment out here in Hope Maine. But uh, you know, that's how it goes sometimes. For me, another really surprising aspect of this race, and I know you and I were talking prior to recording about how Vanderpool and Van Eyre slowed the pace substantially in the final lap. And, you know, probably in the interest of positioning themselves to be first going into that last corner, although that didn't work out for a while. Something that genuinely surprises me, almost shocks me about this world championships is looking at the top 10 finishers. Or, like, let's look at the top eight. They are all within a minute of Vanderpool. That's shocking to me based on what we saw the rest of the season where everyone was getting completely blown out of the water. So Izzerbit was twelve seconds behind uh, the winner, Van Turnout, Lars Vanderhart. Uh, you know, thirteen seconds. Van Turnout was Is this 46 classic Vanderhart. Yeah. How can I just miss out on a result? Yeah, I mean, no, yeah. completely. But I mean, you know, the other the other aspect of this race, the world championship for everyone else was, can I get third place in this race? Which says something about the level that Vanderpol and Van Art are at consistently, but it was way tighter among the best of the rest than I thought it would be. What did you think about seeing so many people clustered so close in the top 10? I was really surprised. I mean for Ellie Iserbit in third, this is
0: like a world championship. This is his world championship. Getting third 12 seconds behind those two guys, that's a massive result. There is a steep drop off. It's Iserbit at 12, Vanderhart 13, and then 46 seconds back to Michael Vanterthout um so that but i would have expected third place to be about 45 seconds to a minute i mean maybe that just reflects i I don't know i mean they did slow down quite a bit i mean once Vanderpool realized he wasn't going to gap van art there was a little bit of a stalemate they're just kind of marking each other so maybe that slowed the pace down just just enough versus races four weeks ago where van art's just going full gas by himself and putting a minute into the second place finisher um, but you know, maybe it, it signals that Van Aert was a little, not overtrained, but just peaked a little early in the season. These guys all took their two week break to go to Spain, um, ra- ratchet up their fitness a little bit. And we've seen the margins tighten in the last three weeks, you know, because Cameron Mason in ninth, your, your guy, Cameron Mason, um, this is a huge result for him. He's a minute and eight seconds behind Vanderpool. That's about where he's been all season but he's been finishing you know second third fourth with that minute gap and then you saw all these belgians and and one dutch guy kind of leapfrog him in the last few weeks of the season so maybe it reflects that they just all season long were planning on kind of peaking right at this world championships with which tightened the margins a little bit
1: yeah peaking to with the knowledge that they would get absolutely destroyed, but hoping to get that. <laughs> yeah, surprise, how can we,
0: right? Yeah. How can we limit the destruction that's going to happen to us?
1: Yeah. Another thought that I had heading into the race, you know, there's a lot of chatter about the course itself, which <clears throat> Matthew Vanderpool's dad, Adrian Vanderpool, legendary cyclocross racer himself designed the course. Wout had some fantastic comments. Again, I know We exchanged some messages about this, but, uh, the title of the story, I love these stories by the way, where one of these guys will do a press conference for 30 seconds and then someone writes a thousand words about it. So I'm not going to, (laughs) you know, there is an art to that. Like we've seen it in all other forms of journalism, but it's really not adding much beyond the quote from the cyclist. But Wout said a four cyclocross world title won't add much to my Palmares. (laughs) I just love this. And then he talked about how I look at it slightly differently to Vanderpool. winter is a step below what follows next. On the road, there are certain races that I say that spring has not been successful if I or the team do not win there. I'm racing for the honor, of course. I'm still in love with the sport, the game, etc. But he's more or less saying this isn't that big of a deal to me. I've already won the world championship. Three times at uh, at the elite level, and ah, yeah, well, you know, I'm kind of looking down the road, and I mean, and he also said it's all a bit less exciting now. Like, gosh, just to be so blasé, I just thought this was an incredible uh, attempt to get in the head of Matthew Vanderpool because Matthew Vanderpool, coming out of the season he had last year, and then the tr- ongoing trouble he has with his back after trying to ride that ramp that was not there at the Olympics, this definitely means a lot to him. And of all the controversy with the, uh, the door knocking incident at road worlds, which he probably should have won. Right. But instead, Remco actually uh, destroyed him and, or at least like been a competitor. Yeah. It's a, yeah. I <laughs> wouldn't be like, and he would have, no, it's, I'm not. Yeah. Sure. That's a bit of a stretch. The other thought that I had about seeing, you know, looking again, going back to seeing the results and people, clustered relatively tightly i know spencer i don't remember if we've talked about this have you been out there on the hallowed grounds of valmont have you done a bit of cross racing yourself or have you been more of a spectator where you on the cross continuum
0: uh, i yeah i I've, I've mixed it up out there at valmont um and then i've also done my fair bit of spectating which which i prefer to do at valmont
1: yeah absolutely in fact Following this World Championships, I was uh, talking to Molly, my wife, about potentially getting the kids signed up for an Angamba spectator camp out of Valmont in the fall, <laughs> so they could learn to learn to cheer better. Um, but you know, one of the common complaints in American cyclocross is that the courses are too easy in America. They're often called grass crits or dirt crits. And looking at the course in Bentonville last year, which I found to be bizarre and not really much of a cyclocross course. It was a very strange one. It was definitely a a dirt crit. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, Yeah. But we, you know, if you're in part of any cyclocross community and unfortunately cyclocross racing in the United States is on life support, it's not a real thriving scene right now, but just hear all the time racers complaining about, Oh, it's a dirt crit. It's a grass crit. Now the last two, elite world championships have been dirt crits or grass crits. And I think that's also part of why we see results clustered so tight. There just weren't a lot of points where separation could actually happen on the course because the speed was so high and it actually was most analogous to very early season races in the United States, like the world cup in Wisconsin, uh, some of the races on the East coast as well that are just, they are grass crits. Yeah, my son's two year old son's course analysis was
0: no mud. He was very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of loved it. I mean, just, to, I mean, generally, you, you don't want, yeah, the American Valmont just grass crit after grass crit. Um, but, you know, we got plenty of mud earlier in the season. Does Worlds have to be a mud slop every year? Like in this specific scenario, seeing these two, I called them probably two of the best cross riders of all time. I got some pushback on that, but. I mean, I would, I would even go further and say two of the best riders of all time, like to ever do it just to give them a clean race, you know, to come like, I don't know. I found that final lap so thrilling. And then to have them come into the finish together, I thought in this, in this specific scenario, I liked the course a lot, but I could see if you, if you're,
1: if you're a mud head, like my son, it's maybe disappointing. <laughs> I, I mean, we have to talk about the gear selection for this race as well. As listeners may or may not know, at the end of 2022, Wout van Aert and Jumbo Visma switched from Shimano to SRAM. That meant that Wout, who historically had run a double crankset, which is uncommon in domestic cyclocross, but in European cyclocross, a lot of the top riders are still running doubles with DI2. So he had to go to a single ring. And... I saw an Instagram post from Phil Gaiman. I can't find the source of this quote, but he screenshotted. And I heard this from a couple of other people. So take it with a grain of salt, but I believe it to be true that following the race, Wout said he did not have the right gearing and he was on a 48 tooth single ring and he didn't have enough gear to out sprint Vanderpool. I mean, watching it, he didn't jump when Vanderpool started to move, which that's why I was like, what's, what's going on here. But in addition to that, he did make this equipment change. I don't know what gear Vanderpool was running. I can't imagine it was, I can't imagine he was like running a 52. I don't know, but there is this. I
0: guess if he had a double, I, I don't, I'm looking at pictures. It doesn't look like he had a double, but let's just say he did. You know, you could run a big front chain ring. You could run a 52 for the sprint and then just race. And I don't know, you could even, You could have a 52, you know, 48, something like that. Just a massive, both are massive because you're not going to need to climb any mountains. And then you race in your little chain ring and then you sprint in the big chain ring. I don't think that's what he did, but the double isn't terrible. I do understand like for most people, like if you're riding gravel, if you're doing cross, like a single, it's just cleaner, I guess it's more efficient. But it did look like, wow, it did not have enough gear in that sprint it was it kind of turned into a road race in the final 300 meters and like what's what's the good the good ratio for the rest of the course maybe isn't good for that that's where the single gets a little tricky in my opinion
1: yeah and the big issue with the double is the danger of having a drop chain with the chain getting jostled on the course and I mean, we've seen- That doesn't happen- No, never. Professionals. No, yeah. it, it never happens. Everybody's <laughs> chains function perfectly under optimal conditions on the road where there's no reason the chain should ever drop off. Yeah, I, I was thinking
0: about that in that last lap. Like, I wonder if, I mean, they changed relatively recently, what, a month ago? Yeah. Five weeks ago, they went on the SRAM, and that's not how you would draw that up, but I'd assume the check that uh, just came into Jumbo Visma's account makes up for that you know they probably got I would assume a multi-million dollar cash payment in addition to the free gear so Jumbo might just tell Wout hey bud we uh we don't really care about cyclocross that's cool you got second let's go race some real races I don't think this is a priority for the team
1: yeah so what do you think we're going to see go down with Vanderpool and Van Aert at Strada Bianchi and do they have a chance against Pagachar and the other stars we're going to see coming out. I mean, they definitely have a chance.
0: I was thinking about this though, that, you know, Wout was so fit in what mid December or late December, mid January. Vanderpool looks like he, you know, in very un, un Vanderpool esque fashion, looks like he's actually managed this buildup really well. Um, he wasn't too fit too early. He looks really fit now. I'm a little worried about, wow, specifically. I mean, can he, that's hard. Can you imagine this? So you do world championships after a pretty hard season of racing cross, even though he didn't do it full time. And then you have to do a quick wind down and then build back up while your competition, like, you know, even think of someone like Casper Askren, really good classics rider. Like he's just been focusing on training for the classics. Like that's a massive advantage. So uh, Strata's, it's, Strata's not very far away. i just It's hard for me to wrap my head around how you would wind down and then wind back up against people who are just focusing on the road. But clearly these guys are so good that maybe it doesn't matter. Um, but I, I would expect to see them. I would expect to see Vanderpool just come in absolutely flying at Strata. Maybe wow. But then it gets a little bit more complicated to me, like, can they Strata's a long ways away from Pere Rubé and Tour of Flanders? Like, how are they going to manage that five, six-week spread? Maybe it's even longer. It might even be eight weeks. I don't quite understand that, and I, am, I do have some concerns about how they're going to manage it. I mean, racing cross is not good for your early road career. As like, Didn't Mariana Voss and PFP both have to take like, year-long breaks from the sport because they were trying to race cross competitively late into the season and then also pick the road season up early? It's not a, there's not a great track record here of people managing this.
1: Yeah, I think that this is the last time that we're likely to see these racers go head-to-head at cyclocross worlds. Because for that very reason, I think that Wout in particular, Wout wants Flanders or Roubaix. He's, he said like, hey, this is a key objective for me. I haven't done it yet. I don't think he's going to forsake the type of training that we know works best for those races next year unless he happens to win one of them this year, which is possible, but I'm looking at the dates right now. So we've got Strada Bianca coming up on March 4th. So that's one month out from Cyclocross World Championships. These guys will begin their road programs, both of them starting at that race. Then they're both at Treno-Adriatico. Wild- which is two days after Strada. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. intense. Yeah, and then it's... Um, yeah, and then six day break, then they're at Milan, San Remo, and then it's Tour of Flanders roughly two weeks after that. I mean, there's not a lot of time to build the base needed to, to go do these six, you know, six hour classics races that they're going to be doing,
0: right? I, I would guess, though, that they've been doing that, that they've essentially been training for these spring classics and then trying to add in maybe more intensity than you would normally do, so they're they topped up for the cross races. I'd be surprised if they have not already put in the base for these races, because they just simply wouldn't be ready. If they did like an Ellie Iserbit schedule that was just focused on cross training, I don't think they could be ready for these six, seven hour races. That, that seems too hard.
1: Yeah, well, all of these riders, prior to World Championships, were doing training camps in Spain. And I don't know where specifically Wout was, but I would imagine he probably was doing an altitude camp somewhere. And, but I mean, looking at that race schedule, I just don't know where they would, I guess they would just do, you know, continue their training and do some very long rides as pro cyclists often do, some 20, 30 hour weeks. But thinking about harvesting the impact of that training, you need at least two weeks for your body to absorb the load of uh, that training stimulus. And I'm just like, where in the schedule do they absorb that? And I mean, having said that, I also think they're game competitors. They've done this for a number of cycles. Now they're going to be in the mix at these races. And there's a chance that they're flat and don't have any pop. I mean, that's also, I don't think that's what happened to Van Art at cyclocross worlds. I think there was a, strange tactical or gear mistake that's very uncharacteristic for him. It just it didn't seem in character for him. It's also possible that he may have lacked some of the pop that we've seen him have in the past. And it's like when you're racing that hard all the time, and I agree with you, Spencer, they're definitely putting in the volume to prepare for the classics outside of what they're doing with their cyclocross training. But it's almost like your friend that you see out on the bus stop Wednesday world's ride who's then going and doing secret training afterwards and then we know what happens those people get super burned out pretty quickly yeah
0: yeah one person in mind I'm thinking about but wow did look like a different guy he looked really flat but I guess if you go back to the wow quote is he telling us that he just trained through this which it's kind of difficult to believe like that's what you would do for a local crit maybe (laughs) like oh I'm just training through this race. And that's what he looked like. So maybe his plan is, you know, I, I, my training block for the spring classics is just going to overlap with cross. And that's why I might look like, you know, relative crap at some of these races. Maybe they happen to be the world championships, but he looked, it's hard to say someone looked bad when they didn't get dropped by Matthew Vanderpool, who looked unbelievable, but he definitely looked flatter as you say, than he's looked the rest of the year. Um, one thing I want to ask you about—it's it, like they talked to you before this race. The the coverage looked fantastic, and they had drones flying around. Did you, I'm sure you noticed this. I thought it was motos at first. I was like, "How can they have motos on the course? This is not safe. It's a little disrespectful to the people trying to catch up to the front two But then I realized it was just drones capturing the footage. Um, if you were really upset with the lack of overhead shots in maybe some late Vuelta sprint stages. This would seem to solve that problem. I mean, you could get these drones in a really tight, they were in a little forest and they had the drone flying through. I thought it was, I thought the production was really, really impressive and something Rode could borrow from.
1: Yeah, the, the production values of the coverage were fantastic. I agree with you. And for anyone who's a fan of Cross, since the early 2000s, they've been using things like they've been using steady cams, they've been running cameras on quads that drive next to the course they have gigantic booms that you would see in like a Hollywood film that they use to provide really smooth shots of different features on the course. And they're doing it all in a highly contained environment. That's what's different than what we see on the road where (laughs) they uh, sometimes are are putting riders on uh, a city center road with cars parked on the side of the road and poles sticking out of the ground at various spots. I mean, it seems like they can barely, funnel the riders to the finish line sometimes. So it would be really nice if they were able to provide coverage where you could, for example, see things like the finish of the race. But historically that's been a really big challenge in road racing coverage. And like we've talked about here many times before, I think it's a huge limiter for the more general appeal of the sport. Cause you can't understand what's happening at the finish and probably at least 50% of road races.
0: Hey, it's part of the charm. It's all part of the charm. One thing I've noticed, there is a road race. This actually reminded me of Tour of Flanders or like the Fland- Flanders Classics races in general where they it was controversial when they did it, but they essentially got rid of the old Flanders course, which was really cool for racing. And now they, they do the last, it's like 70 to 50K on a closed circuit. And they, they provide really good coverage. It looks a lot like this cross coverage did you know, this, this is almost like a high thought or something like, I swear I'm not high right now, but maybe, maybe the idea of just, you know, these, these races are on just open roads and we're going through city centers. Maybe that's kind of a, something that won't happen in the future. And they, you know, you you don't close down something permanently, but you have a circuit that you can control and you funnel riders, riders through and That's how you provide better footage than, oh, we just happen to be finishing on this street that has a lot of trees and we can't film it. Like maybe actually pick the street that you can film and try to secure that in advance as opposed to just showing up and and filming random roads where the race happens to be.
1: That's a wild idea. That's too outrageous for anyone to ever take seriously or execute. I'm just doing a quick Google over here on the side, Spencer. As you know, I typically use Bing, but Today, I decided to use Google and pulled up uh, another Wout Van Art article from November based on probably 30 seconds of him talking. And um, the title of this one is Wout Van Art Cyclocross World Championships are the only goal of the winter. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just imagining. I, I actually, it's, it's tough to feel like to actually feel sorry for Wout when he loses because he wins so much. But following that race, I did think this one is this one has got to hurt, and he's going to feel the sting for a while. Another thing he looked really yeah, upset. Yeah, he didn't look like this is this is not something I'm focusing on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we haven't gone into it in depth here, but I did want to mention a couple of things about the women's cyclocross world championship, which was a fantastic race, and uh, Fem looked like. She looked so robo. She looked like she was barely working and just absolutely destroyed the field. And when Puck came across the line, I don't know if you watched uh, the race afterwards, Spencer, but so Puck came across in second doing a wheelie and it was like the saddest wheelie I've ever seen. She clearly was, (laughs) she, she was like, I mean, she was so disappointed that she lost the race she had an incident early in the race where she hit the dirt and i feel like that you know could she have kept up and won the race that's debatable but she definitely had had a good chance of doing it and she just looked so bummed out and you know it's a puck after you know immediately when she finished she gave Fem a hug but you could just tell like when they were on the podium i was i watched that race with my kids as well and they were like why is that woman so sad? She just got second place at the world championships. And then I had to explain to them, you know, these are professional athletes and she didn't want, she didn't want to get second place today. Kids. Did she have like a bet or like a contractual
0: binding contract that she had to do a wheelie or what was was the wheelie about?
1: It was just, I think it was, I mean, I haven't seen her speak on this. My feeling was she perhaps, she felt dejected. Like you could see it on her face and maybe she was just like trying to salvage it and, you know, put a positive spin on uh, a pretty crushing defeat. It's the saddest wheelie I, ever go back and watch it. And I, I want, you know, get at us on Twitter. I'm at Vonson at Hardway pod, reach out to Spencer. I would love to hear your thoughts on Pucks wheelie. Was it the saddest wheelie ever?
0: I was on a flight. I missed this women's race live. The thing that stuck out to me is like maybe half of the season, I'm like, who the heck are these people? Like Fem is 20. Puck is 20. The, you know, Lucinda Brand, you, you would know. Like she's a big star, got third in this race. And then it's just this seemingly endless supply of young, and both Fem and Puck are Dutch. Just Dutch young riders are, are just they're they're everywhere. I mean, there's this woman, Carmen Alvarado. Yeah. She's used to be the world champion, I believe. Correct. She's twenty-four. It's like, oh, she's washed. Like yeah. this. So, what is going on? Like, where are all these Dutch and just as a trend in women's cycling in general, just Dutch riders coming through? But it feels like the level in women's cycling has like rocketed up very quickly. And I was even I was loading the dishwasher thinking about this random thought of like Mariana Voss was the best, like she won everything. She, I guess had burnout, it's not clear what happened, but she was doing a Vander, Vanderpool type schedule where she was racing everything, stops for a year, comes back, is nowhere near as dominant. She's still a good rider. You know, I, I would bet that her power numbers are no lower than they were during her dominant phase. Like, I think it's just my theory that women's cycling has gotten, you know, it's almost like every three years it doubles and competitiveness. And I mean, that's really what we saw here. Just two 20 year olds coming in and destroying really every major name in the sport. It was kind of shocking to me.
1: Yeah. And as you pointed out, seven out of the top eight finishers in the women's cyclocross world championship are Dutch. Like they are a juggernaut. And seeing Salem Alvarado go from world champion to two minutes you know, a minute and 46 seconds behind a 20-year-old who just walked into it's the sport. Nuts. That's that's insane. I mean, Femme looks like she's a generational talent. And watching the race, I just she had this effortless, uh, there was an effortless quality about her ride. She was floating over the course. And in contrast to the, um, yeah, she just, her fitness was insane. Her technique was insane. And she made it, I know it wasn't easy, but she made it look effortless. It was incredible. Do you think, so if these were
0: men, you'd say they're going to the road. You know, that's, that's where the money is. That's where the glory is. What do you think happens? Do you think they just are going to be professional off-road racers? I guess PFP would be the... I just call her PFP because I'm so scared of messing up her name. But Pervo raced on the road. I think she was world champion, actually. So she was a very good road racer. She now really just races cyclocross and mountain bike and some gravel. Do you think that's what they'll do? Or will they try to jump over to the road? And are they going to be... The ones, the princesses that were promised to finally vanquish Amanique Am- 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 An- Am- van Vlooten, who will probably be winning races when she's like 45 years old.
1: Yeah, it's probably a yes and yes, they go to the road. And I'm really curious over probably the next three years, what do we see happen with this people taking a multidiscipline approach? Are we going to see, is the teleology of the Vanderpool Van Aert van approach? Pitcock approach as well. Are we going to see these guys completely burn out and then go into the gravel community? I don't think that's likely to happen. I think that they're going to cut out some of the non-road racing activity and get more focused. But I do think that we're going to enter an era of careers being shorter, higher intensity, and with greater achievement packed into a shorter period of time and, you know, in 10 years, I don't think it'll be uncommon for a professional cycling career to end at 25. And also, I think gravel will be a highly professionalized discipline at that point in time. And we'll see more people go from the road and racing things like the Tour de France and to gravel at a much earlier stage. And in women's racing, I think we're going to see more of this multi-surface, multi-discipline mix uh and that you know this, Spencer again we've talked about this while not recording but thinking about where sponsors get the greatest return on an investment maybe that's the direction the sport is heading and there's also the question of where can you maximize the exposure of flat brim hats on athletes heads so maybe uh
0: i mean i the, like the tour gets i mean more viewers in a minute than than like all the exposure of gravel combined i mean that's still where you're selling bikes and gravel is a niche i I mean i think if you want to do it if you like Lawrence Tendam is really about that life i think the novelty of seeing former world tour cyclists slowly pedal around on gravel will lose its appeal you know especially as gravel has its own homegrown talents like our our guy, Evar Slick, I mean, he's just going to be crushing people if they're not ready to go. So I don't know. And a lot of these, like, if you want to make 5 million euros a year, you've got to be doing the Tour de France. I and mean, you're not going to be able to command that much money in gravel. I can't imagine. 2025. Let's see what happens, Spencer. To my knowledge, the races are not televised, correct? Or there's a, there's a poor stream that was cut mid-season.
1: That's accurate. But with AI, anything is possible.
0: <laughs> we don't even need the races.
1: Yeah, I'm going to ask Chat GPT to fix that problem following this call. Um, it's, what, it's what you have to do now. You have to talk about it, and then you need to post about it on Twitter and share a, a picture. So I'll do that. Yeah. My, but I guess I have the opposite prediction. that I,
0: I do think you're right, that pro careers for the top riders will get shorter, which is funny because that's what was happening in like the 70s and 80s, like Greg LeMond type. I mean, think of Hino. He retired not that old. Um, I think we are going to see people burn out because these lifestyles are not sustainable. I think gravel, though, will produce such good riders. I mean, some of these gravel riders are really, really good that you won't be able to just walk, walk in and win. I mean, you're just, and do we need to see Tom Dumoulin go slow pedal Dirty Kanza? I don't think I do. You know, I just don't know how appealing that's going to be the 50th time a world tour cyclist decides that they want to race a random gravel race.
1: That's a good point. I am curious to see if gravel starts to produce actual young talent that could go to the world tour versus, yeah, cy- that's- versus riders like Keegan, who's a world-class talent could go to the world tour. Isn't going to make the salary that he's making right now. And he's relatively late in his career. So, you know, I'm not sure how desirable that is. For a world tour team versus investing in a 16 or 17 year old who could be, you know, the next Remco. I, yeah, it's a good question because Keegan was
0: a mountain biker, correct? That's his background.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's been a minute since I've gone to a big box store gravel race, uh, like the lifetime events. So I don't know. There might be, there might be a lot of young people participating. The last time I went, it was a lot of. Masters racers, you know people I didn't see a a lot of juniors or like uh young people out there doing the events, but that might have completely changed i don't know i I think that's correct i just the races are so long. it's
0: definitely an old man's game. I mean it's like okay, we're gonna race for six hours like is no kid is gonna that's just too long it's probably too long for a young body i mean that's right. I think it's like I have a job that I numb out at, and this is a pursuit that I can just, <laughs> my mind is so fried. I can just ride for six hours, and that's better than the reality of my life. I'm, that's, that's, it's like a ridiculous summation of gravel, but it's a little bit, that's what it is. Like, if you're saying Cross is dying, and I totally agree with you, but you know, that's where the kids are. Like, if you go out to, a park in Boulder at 5 p.m., you know, there's 500 kids on cross bikes crossing around or mountain, you know, it's like I'll run into packs of like 150 kids on mountain bikes just out on the local, local trails. Like I think that's where the young talent is is and is going to be because it's a much more manageable race setup. You know, do, do middle-aged men need to be doing cross races? Probably not, it's kind of a pain in the butt it's not that fun if you're not really, really good. So gravel's always going to be better for the mature rider. Um, but I think for kids, yeah, it's like the talent's going to continue to come from mountain bike and cross.
1: Yeah, and Nika, I think, will be a big source of elite riders in the future. Although, if you talk to nika Nika's They've explicitly say our purpose is not to generate elite riders. It's to... Introduce people to the community, the camaraderie, and all the benefits you can get from the discipline that comes from participating in mountain biking and getting outside, which is awesome. And I think a lot of high level riders could come out of those programs. There's an accessibility issue. And I think your point about what's going down in Boulder is noted. And Boulder is a total anomaly in the United States and probably for most geographies in the world. That's just. Not happening in a lot of areas, like where I live. Young people, they there's a NICA program here or a high school mountain bike program. It's uh, very popular, very successful. I have seen zero people under the age of probably thirty five riding a bike on the road here, which I just like. Young people here seem to have no interest in road riding, which is fine, and I can understand why that might be the case, given road safety and people with their telephones and other things these days but um yeah these other disciplines are likely to produce the future champions and spencer i hate to thats what's funny is they already are yeah like if you yeah, look at totally
0: a women's mountain biking like all these fantastic like world-class riders came from the uh high school program so they can say i mean i believe them that and i think that's the right path but they actually by doing what they're doing they're also producing really really good riders
1: yeah Absolutely. So I think um it'd be fantastic to have a longer chat about something completely different which is the Lifetime Grand Prix YouTube series. And I know Spencer and I have talked about doing the rewatchables in relation to some classic uh World Tour races taking a look back, but that might be a an actual rewatchables of something that's uh that's out there that's a dramatic series that's on YouTube. Would be fun to talk maybe about. Maybe we try
0: to do this. It's a little bit of a. We had some some good road racing that we're not going to get to. We'll, well, I have some questions for Benji about. Does any of this matter? What should we take from this? So we'll cover that in our conversation with Benji. But you know, maybe we just in the next few weeks try to. <laughs> I went on YouTube to watch the Lifetime video because you were recommending it. It's like, oh my God, there's like eight episodes and they're 30 minutes each. But I'm gonna try to bang those out on the trainer and then maybe we talk about it before real spring races start
1: yeah i think that would be great and we're gonna have to figure out which flat brim hats we wear while discussing the races and we will have to decide which one of us gets to grow a signature mustache as well all All right right. all right well (laughs) thanks andrew and we will talk to everyone soon we've got a couple episodes coming out in the next couple weeks